Um, with that said, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, we're in Exodus chapter 19, if you have um, a Bible or an app. And as you turn, I've got questions for kids and adults to start out. So, no filters. First question, you ready? What's a rule that you really don't like to follow? Kids or grown-ups, what's a rule you really don't like to follow? Yeah. No candy anytime you want. That's a rule I don't like to follow either. What's another rule you don't like to follow? Yeah, Mabel. I'll come back to you. Okay. Grown-ups, kids, I don't like to pay property taxes. <laughs> yes, sir. Don't like to read? All right, and you have to read. Sometimes there's a rule to follow. Yeah. Kids got, kids got to do chores. Grown-ups got to do chores, yeah. Cleaning up your room. Listening. Just, that pretty much covers everything. <laughs> I don't like to listen and obey. Not getting to watch videos all the time. Yeah, Curtis? Ash, uh, even during the summer? Like, we meet, like, late in the afternoon. Yeah. It's weird you, had to, to, weird you had to define that, actually, as a rule. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> Only watch educational stuff so you don't rot your mind. Terrible rules. Good parents. Good parents right there. Uh, okay, different question. What are some roles, not rules, what are some roles that you find yourself playing in life? What are some roles that you play in life? Yes. Babysitter. All right. What are some other roles? Yes, sir. Serving. Serving. Yeah, we serve people, Clara. Being a big sister, that is a role. Grown-ups, what are some roles you play in life as well for this one? Wife. Wife. Yeah. What else? Caregiver. Caregiver. Mm-hmm. Dad. Dad. Yeah. All, mo- most of us have, have some role that we play at a at, at, at workplace, comes with a job description, that kind of stuff. A lot of times we think of roles as the things that we do. And so uh, caregiver is one that, that we do for a while and then we might not do anymore. The job you have right now is something you do for a while. You might not have the same job you used to have. You might not have that same job forever. There's another question I want to ask is what are some of the things that form your identity? Because identities are, are deeper than roles. They're more than what we do. And so even wife or dad starts to kind of slip into this bigger thing that may form some of our identity. An identity says, I wasn't this, and then I became this, and we're, we still kind of carry that on for forever. You'll, you'll be a dad forever, even when kids are gone. Um, there's still something that changed about that. What are, some, what are some other markers of identity? What are some, some, some terms that define your identity? Yeah? Say it again. Loving. That's a great identity. What are other, some other identities? Thanks, bud. A dad, wife, what else? Mom, husband, I'll just fill in the gaps. What else? Student. Student. Yeah, is that a role or an identity? Ooh. Where you live. Where you live. Yeah, there's, there's a, a cultural identity. There's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into shaping our, our worldview, shapes the, the, the way we see the world. And, and, and here's what I'm just trying to draw out, is that, that our identities are deeper than our roles. Our identity is more than what we do. It's really about who we are. There's a conviction throughout the scriptures that what you, 
who you are leads to what you do. And that's true for followers of Jesus. Honestly, that's, that's true for everyone, from folks who talk about their gender identity to even the greatest showman, this is me, right? This is kind of the declaration of that, um, to cultural divisions we see. If your identity is a certain gender, a certain political party, a certain faith, you're going to act X, Y, or Z depending on the thing you base your identity on. In most of the New Testament letters in the scriptures, the author does not start with, hi, I'm Paul, go do this. What what does the author of most New Testament letters start with? He starts with identity statements. Here's who you are. So for example, in Ephesians, you were dead in your sins. In Christ, who you are is someone who's been revived to life. And then there's some things that we do, some roles, some actions that flow out of that identity. 2 Corinthians is another easy one to see. You've been reconciled to God. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. We are, we are ministers of reconciliation. That's, that's an identity statement. So what do we do? We try to pursue that ministry. We try to reconcile the brokenness in the world around us. But the problem, this part, what I, what I want to dwell on this today for, the problem for a lot of followers of Jesus is that our faith is reduced to just actions. Christianity is about doing this reading that, praying this, or not doing this, not reading that, not praying this. And if we don't ever address the why, then we have a weak and shifting faith that can be tossed around because it's got a weak foundation. And so what we're going to see today is that God's Old Testament people, Israel, and the same is true for God's New Testament people, us, we're going to see that true faith and biblical actions start with understanding our identity and start with understanding God's authority. In other words, what we do starts with knowing who God is and who we are. That's what we see in Exodus 19 and 20. These, these are kind of famous verses. This is where the Ten Commandments happen. Um, this is where the Ten Commandments are given. And the Ten Commandments are actions. Don't do this. Do do this. But before the actions and the commands, God shows Israel their identity. In other words, You might think that the literal exodus is the most famous scene in the book of Exodus, when when God parts the Red Sea and they leave Egypt. And it's it's an amazing, miraculous picture of salvation. But many theologians say that that Exodus chapters 19 and 20 are the true climax of this book. Because it's in these chapters that we see God give his people a new identity. I, I brought you out, yes, but I brought you out for something. He's going to make a covenant promise with his people. This is really about the founding of a nation, and we see some founding documents. So this is what we see today, is is who God is and what he's done for us, that's what leads us to who we are and how we live for him in the midst of a broken and unbelieving world. Let me say that again. Who God is and what he's done for us leads us to know who we are and how we live for him in the midst of a broken and unbelieving world. So that's what we see in these chapters that we're going to kind of fly through. Let's pray. God, would you be our teacher today? Would you even remind us of these truths and help us see that you are a God who is more, more than just a rule giver and more than one who just wants our actions, that you want our hearts and that you've created something new in us? Would you help us even in this brief time to understand you more, to live out of that truth more? We can't accomplish this on our own. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the beginning of Exodus 19, Israel has been wandering uh, in the wilderness for about three months, three different moons, Um, and they come to Mount Sinai where Moses has this famous meeting with God. 
And so we see this theme again, our identity is greater than our actions right out of the starting gate. This is Exodus 19, uh, starting in verse 4. It's going to be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Exodus 19, verse 4 says, this is God speaking to Moses, okay? He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I, I saved you out of the land of Egypt is what he's saying. Now, therefore, because of what I've done, if you will indeed fulfill uh, my covenant and, and obey my voice, you will be, listen to these identity statements, you'll be my treasured possession among all people, for the earth is mine. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the people of Israel. All right, talk to me. Who is God? What's he done in these verses? What does he say about himself? Open question. The earth belongs to him. Yeah, he's the creator and sustainer of the earth. Yeah. What else? Yeah, he said, I'm going to make you a treasured possession of all nations of the earth. He bore them out of eagles and he saved them out of Egypt. And does God just demand empty obedience and repayment and, and new actions as kind of, kind of recompense for what he did? No, God doesn't give them commands first. He first gives them a new identity. And it's a good identity. And, and y'all tr just try for a sec as best we can to put ourselves in Israel's shoes. They were slaves. They, they were not a nation. They were the servants of a nation. They had no possessions of their own. And, and now there's words like, you're going to be treasured. You're going to be my kingdom. You're my holy nation. Because of God's salvation, Israel's no longer slaves to Pharaoh. They get to be beloved children of God. And for anyone who claims to follow Jesus, there's a version of this story that's yours as well. We were slaves to something. We were servants to something. We had our identity found in something, something other than God shaped our worldview. But in Jesus, we've said yes to a better story, better authority, better identity. And for anyone who's not a Christian, anyone here who doesn't follow Jesus, this is, this is your story too. It's just unfinished. Because for all of us, and please hear me, no matter what you believe, something in your life or someone in your life has authority over you. It's just, it's just how it works. Something or someone has authority over you. Something or someone shapes your identity. Everyone's worldview, everyone's belief system, everyone's actions and thoughts stem from something deeper. The way that we define right and wrong, the, the thoughts we think, it stems from our deeper identity. And, and so everyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, everyone worships something or someone, everyone serves something or someone, everyone follows something or someone. And so the language that, that the scriptures use for this is to say that we are all priests of something or someone. That may sound odd, but anyone know the role of, a, of an Old Testament priest? even if you have some, some Roman Catholic in your background, or you can kind of picture a role of a priest. What's the role of a priest? It's an intercessor. Yeah, it's a go-between between God and people. They're mediators. Priests would, would declare the glory of God to other people and would display to those people the difference that God makes to those around them. 
priests would represent the people before God and, and offer prayers and sacrifice. So the priests would represent God to people and say, this is the word and ways of the Lord. And so if we extrapolate this out, the reality is that we each declare the glory of someone or something to the world around us. Is that fair? We each have something or someone that we say, this matters most. We each have something or someone, or maybe multiple somethings or someones that we're, that we're constantly preparing or declaring the glory of. And so maybe for some of us, it's just a question of, I haven't thought about this before, what is it that you declare the glory of? What or whom do you proclaim the goodness Because God makes a promise to say, you're going to be priest of a better God. But there's a condition on this. He says, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, this new identity is yours. And if we fast forward thousands of years to today, I don't think I have to convince you that too many people are walking around claiming to follow Jesus with their words, but are not willing to actually obey God not willing to, to do what we saw some folks do a couple weeks ago in, in baptism and, and declare that they've died to themselves and are in still, in, instead living for a better God. Too many people are walking around claiming with lip service, yes, I follow God, but are not accepting God as authority and their greatest identity. And so again, who or what do you obey? Who or what things do you follow? And if I can ask another question, does that thing, whatever it promises you, does that person, whatever he or she promises you, are they able to keep that promise? I'll make life better. I'll, 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 I'll meet your needs. I'll do everything for you. Are they able to keep that promise? Are they able to bless you? That's the question for Israel. Will you accept God as your ultimate identity? Will you accept God as your ultimate authority? That's the question for us. Will you accept God as your ultimate identity? God as your ultimate authority. In the next verses, Israel responds to God's offer. Look at verse 7 of Exodus, 18, uh, Exodus 19. Excuse me. It'll be on the screen. In verse 7, Moses came and called the leaders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses repeated the words of the people to the Lord. Now, if you know the rest of the book of Exodus, does Israel keep their word? Yes, God, we'll be yours. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll not disobey you. Does, does Israel keep their word? No, no, they do not. In fact, even while Moses is up on this mountain, We'll see in a few weeks, they're down making an idol and worshiping another God. They make and worship an idol. They disobey. They display and declare the glories of other someones and other somethings to the world around them. Why? Because they're human. And they do the exact same things that we do, and they do the exact same things that every human does. They did not and could not keep their word. But you know who does keep his word in this text and in your lives every time we fail to keep our word? God pursues and God gives grace through the rest of Exodus while maintaining his holiness. He preserves his people. Though we fail to keep our covenant in Christ, our identity is even more secure. And y'all, that is good news. 
We have a covenant-keeping God no matter what we do. He pursues. And the identity that God gave Israel in Exodus 19, you need to hear this, is our identity today. In fact, God uses the exact same words to describe his New Testament people and our identity and our actions as he used in Exodus 19 to define his Old Testament people's identity and actions. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to be up on the screen. And listen to how familiar, exact these words are. This is Peter saying, I've brought you into my salvation. God saying to Peter, I've brought you into my salvation. Here's what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Familiar? These are the same identity statements that God gives his Old Testament people. Because you're these things, you will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you are those who have received mercy. Y'all, this is who we are. This is who God's people have always been and will always be. Out of those identity statements, what is it that God calls us to do? Ours is to proclaim the excellencies of a better God who called us out of whatever form of darkness and slavery and entrapment and addiction, disobedience we were in, into his marvelous light and saving grace. We get to be priests declaring the good news to one another. We get to be priests displaying the difference that God makes to one another in the world around us. Exodus 19, 1 Peter, still today, who you are, who you are is a redeemed, beloved son or daughter of God and part of God's spiritual nation. Who you are is a priest designed and and blessed with the blessing of displaying and declaring the good news of God to an unbelieving world around you. That's who you are because of who God is. And the rest of chapter 19, God prepares his people to meet with their God. He walks them through cleansing rituals because he's, he's a loving God, but he's also a holy God, and you have to be clean to come before him. It's part of our celebration of what Jesus did for us is purified and cleansed us once and for all. And then once Israel's identity is established and once they're clean and pure before a holy God, we entered Exodus 20. And it's here we find the Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? I'm not going to ask you to try to name all of them. What are the Ten Commandments? Yeah, the rules you don't like to follow. (laughs) At least a couple of them. Hopefully a few of them are okay. In the Ten Commandments, God shows us how to display his goodness to the non-believing world around us. And that may be a very different view of the Ten Commandments than you've ever thought of before. A lot of times they're just rules, they're words, they're the center of debates of whether, whether they can exist in a you know, small town Texas courthouse or not. Um, A lot of us don't see the Ten Commandments as to what the words actually represent. And what they represent is a loving God 
who gave us a new identity, displaying his goodness to the world around us. They're not empty rules. They're not actions. Rather, the Ten Commandments are saying because of God's work and from our identity, these things are overflows that just reflect the heart of God in our everyday lives. Here's what I mean by that. We're not going to walk through every single one. But Exodus 20, chapter 2, or Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. This is the first commandment. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, pull that up on the screen real quick, because I want you to see this again. What you see is, again, the reason for all that we've said so far. God tells us our identity. Go ahead, go forward for just a couple slides for me. All right, he shows us again our identity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is what I've done for you. This is my goodness to you. And then commandment number one is number one for a reason. This is encapsulating everything we've said so far today. Lots of people and lots of things will try to be your God. Lots of people and lots of things will vie for your attention and say, follow me. Lots of things and lots of people will try to say, I will make everything better. Lots of people and lots of things will say, I deserve your best. Lots of people and lots of things will try to claim authority over you. But if your identity is founded in the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, then Jesus is our God. You shall have no other gods before me. Everything we do, everything we say everything we believe either starts somewhere else or starts by acknowledging his holiness and submits to his authority. So this isn't just an empty rule. It's saying, look, I'm a better God than anything. Why should you have no other gods before me? Because I am the greatest authority. I'm the one who alone has done everything and will do everything for you. Have no other gods before me as a way to reflect my heart to the world around you. The second commandment is similar. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's on heaven above or earth beneath or the water under the earth. Here's an acknowledgement. Throughout history and across the world, people have tried to understand and control the deity they worship. People of a lot of different religions have tried to understand and control whatever god or gods they say they worship. So idolatry is not just this empty command not to make a little statue. Rather, it's God saying, you can't control me. You'll never be able to understand me. Think about this. If we try to make anything, whether it's on paper or out of metal or out of yarn or whatever it is, we try to make some tangible image, we are inherently limiting God to something we can conjure up in our minds. We're inherently limiting God to something that we can control and, frankly, something we can create. Idols whether they're literal statues or the things we worship and pursue outside of God, they're, they're blind and deaf and powerless. And if we try to make something, make a God that we can control, then we're really breaking commandment number one. 
because we're saying I'm the ultimate authority. I get to make a God in my image. I get to set the terms that this God has. We become our own functional God. We've placed ourselves as the creator over that God, the authority over that God. And from these two flow the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is probably the most misunderstood commandment. Today, don't take the name of the Lord in vain means what? Don't cuss, right? Don't put God's name before some other four-letter word. That's it. That's largely what it means today. Maybe don't swear in God's name. In truth, it's a lot harder than that. What God is saying here is don't claim to worship and trust me if you're not going to submit and follow and obey me. Does that make sense? Taking the name of the Lord in vain is giving lip service to God and saying, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm a follower of Jesus. Absolutely, I believe that God did this. But the hypocrisy of that statement without a life that says, you are truly my God, my Lord, my authority, is what God has been fighting for in this commandment ever since the beginning of sin in the world. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain doesn't mean just don't cuss or swear. It's following this progression of saying, don't have other gods. Second, don't limit God to something you can control. And third, don't say you're going to follow God and then ignore him. In other words, we take the name of the Lord in vain if we claim to follow Jesus, but instead display and declare the glory of some lesser God or obey some authority over gods. And so again, we come back to the question, who or what do you worship and serve? Who or what is your authority who or what do you display and declare to the world around you? So if first three commandments are about who, what we worship, who, what we serve, who or what is our authority, the fourth follows that and just says, who do you trust? Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Talk to me for a minute. What makes it so hard to stop and rest? We were just praying before we started. I was like, I'm coming in so scattered today. And it was kind of this universal thing. And even talking to somebody else in the hallway, just everybody, it's, it's that time of year. It's hot. Summer's almost here. End of school. Everything just feels utterly scattered. What is it that makes it so hard to stop and rest in this season or otherwise? We want to be in control. If I can just Tetris this, this schedule, this calendar thing together, then I'll feel like I'm rested. Are we really rested? No, we're just managing or not our calendar. What, what else? What makes it so hard to rest? Fear of confronting yourself? Yeah. Yeah, if, I, if I'm stopping, I'm acknowledging I have limits and I need something outside myself. We don't like to admit that. There's a trust issue at the root of this. Sabbath whether 24 hours or just some form of pausing and resting and letting God be God is forcing us to say, I'm, I'm not in charge. If we are God's priests and we're declaring to the world, God is good, God is providing, God has a better way, then, then our countercultural declaration 
Again, this is the founding of a nation here. Our countercultural declaration is a declaration of dependence. And I know that's super cheesy to say, but it's true. Sabbath is our declaration to say, I can't do it. I'm relying on you. The, the world around Israel worked for seven days in the agrarian society. And for Israel to stop and say, whatever happens in my fields today was countercultural, revolutionary mark of saying, we're not going to do it. It's never been easy to rest. Sabbath says, I need God. So to summarize, the first four commandments say, if God is who he says he is, he is the ultimate authority, he's the ultimate provider. And if that's true, what's our role? Our role is to follow and rely on and obey that God above anyone or anything else. And if that's our relationship with God, if we can actually obey and believe that God is who he says he is, then the rest of these commandments are just an overflow of that relationship we have with God into our relationships with people. In other words, our, our vertical relationship, our identity, our declarations of who God is impacts our horizontal life, our roles, and our actions. Again, don't forget this. God just saved Israel from Pharaoh who was claiming to be God. He was, he was a bad authority. He exploited Israel as slaves. He didn't offer them any rest. He didn't value them as a family, as a nation. And so the first four commandments is God showing that he's a better God than Pharaoh and all other authorities. And if we trust God, then the rest of the commandments just simply reflect that relationship to the rest of the world. And so we can bucket some of these and just fly through them. We, we reflect our vertical relationship to God as we understand our horizontal relationship toward family. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Why? These aren't just empty rules. It's because we worship God and we claim him as our authority. And we say, God, you designed marriage. And you get to put the parameters on marriage. And you gave us parents. And so ours is to respect their authority and your authority as his representatives. When we dishonor that authority, we again start to go, no, God, I'm going to make you into my image instead. We reflect our vertical relationship with God in our horizontal relationships with others further as, as we don't murder or don't lie. Don't murder, don't bear false witness are two of the commandments here. Why? First, because God is a God of truth and justice. And second, because in him we respect and promote the life that he gave. So as we choose not to murder, as silly as that sounds, as we choose not to bear false witness, we're reflecting something about God and about our identity. Every life is why we lament things that are far away. We've, we've prayed for Ukraine. We've prayed today for things in Brooklyn, folks that will likely never, not Brooklyn, uh, Buffalo, um, folks, folks that will likely never meet. Why do we pray for them? Because life is at stake and God's a giver of life. And God's a God of truth and justice. And so we pray and so we respect life no matter the socioeconomic status, no matter where people live, no matter the gender, age, born, unborn, we respect life. We reflect our vertical relationship with God into our horizontal relationships with others by not stealing or coveting because God frees us from greed and gives us an ability to trust him enough to satisfy our every need. 
or as the Apostle Paul says it, in Jesus we can be content in every circumstance and know what it looks like to have plenty and know what it looks like to have little. There's no possible way to do that if it's just a bunch of rules to follow. The only way we can live out these these beautiful, hard relationships with one another or if we have a deeper starting point and a deeper trust of a better God. There's, there's so much nuance in each of these. We could, we could dwell for hours on each of the Ten Commandments, but, but I wanted to do a flyover today just to help us see them as their kind of one set of commands, not just arbitrary not just empty, not just about our actions, but these commands, in these commands and in in all the other commands that God gives us throughout the scriptures and elsewhere, every act, every thought, every motive, every word, every role we play is going to stem from some deeper belief, some bigger worldview, some truer identity. And every day we get to display and declare as we say, this is who God truly is, and so this is who I truly am as well. Does that make sense? I'd encourage you, as as you meet with your DNA here in the next week or two, to, to walk through the Ten Commandments, all ten of them, through this lens. What does this say about who God is and what he's done first, and why would he have us then reflect this to the world around us? Because if we approach all of God's commands in, in the whole Bible as starting with who God is and what God's done for us and who we thus are in Him, that's the right lens for understanding anything, anything that God gives us. God is not just mean. God is not just demanding. Every command in the entire Scriptures show us how to live for Him. But more than that, they show us how to display His heart to one another, and to an unbelieving world around us. Well, we can't close here. We have to, to look to a final truth in that we can't follow all the commandments. Gabe said the rules we don't like to keep. Um, all rules are rules, frankly, some of us don't like to keep. Jesus alone perfectly obeyed every one of the Ten Commandments and every other law, every other command that God gave. Every other human for all of history has broken, is breaking, maybe right now, and will break God's laws. Sometimes we do it every day, every hour. And and if you're like, no, 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 that's not me, then, then, then it's especially true when we realize that Jesus expanded on the actual actions in the Ten Commandments and declared that even our hearts and our thoughts matter. You've heard it said, don't murder, Jesus said, but anytime you hate someone, you murder them in your heart. Oh, well... You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who lusts after someone commits adultery in their heart. No one, church, no one has lived up to God's perfect standard. No one is a perfect priest who 100% all the time declares and displays God to the world around us. So Jesus' life matters because he alone did what we can't. And Jesus' death matters because he went to the cross for every imperfection. And his death covers every broken command that you have participated in, that you are as we speak, that you will participate in.
His death covers every broken commandment. Jesus' resurrection matters because he invites us into a new and full life now and forever despite our failures. Again, we break covenant all the time, and yet he is a covenant-keeping God who pursues us and shows us grace and invites us in. And Jesus' reign matters because the same God and King who gave us these commandments and died for us when we don't meet those commandments is the same God who empowers us by the Spirit to believe and live and trust and obey. We don't have the power to keep the Ten Commandments. But in Jesus, we have eternity, and we have ability, and we have redemption, and we have perfection. For the Ten Commandments and for every other moment in all of life, Exodus 19 and 20 are simply a reminder pointing us to something and someone true and better. We all need Jesus. And so we declare our reliance and dependence on him as we take communion. So if you don't have the elements there on the table in front of you, if you need a gluten-free option or if you'd like an individually packaged one, they're on the tables back there. But this is our declaration that we believe Jesus to be our ultimate authority and that we believe him to be our ultimate sacrifice because he alone kept these commandments and died while we couldn't. So we take the bread, we can break it, and we can eat it saying, this is your body broken for me and for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Take and eat. And if you haven't dipped it yet, then you can dip into the juice or the wine and say, this is Jesus' blood shed for you, shed for all of your imperfections. Take and drink. Sorry, I have one of the individual ones, so I got caught up in our old way of doing communion. So I'm going to do it. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for these reminders. We thank you for the elements that are in front of us, the crackers, the, the wine, the juice, as the ultimate reminder of our imperfection, but that it's been done away with by your perfection on our behalf. Would you help us to be mindful of these things, and would you help us to have a right view of any command that you give, that it's not just empty, it's not just nothing, it's not just arbitrary. These are ways that your spirit flows through us to display the vertical relationship we have with you into the horizontal relationships we have with each other with the non-believing world. Live your life through us, we pray in your son's name. Amen.